0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a
1: short message about our ministry.
0: We're we're talking about a definitive set of practices that occur in the body of Christ. And that's what we're identifying with as salvation. Once you understand, we're not talking about going to heaven when you die but we're talking about a real-world salvation. So I think that's step one. If we stay in step one, I think I am truly an exclusivist, not in the way that is usually used. In other words, I think what used to be meant by exclusivism is, well, if you don't know about Jesus, you're going to hell. So I think we can talk about the exclusive nature of the body of Christ, just as a reality that we're all faced with. I'm not claiming I know what to do with that, but I don't know what to do with a lot of things. You know, I think you have to keep saying to yourself, well, I may be making narrow claims about Christianity, but those claims are not in any way mysterious because what I'm claiming is that there is peace to be had in Christ, the peaceable kingdom, a nonviolent way of life. What is the marker between the passage from a kind of cultural Christianity? I think it's, it's the marker of violence. So what is a Christian? What is salvation? Well, I think just in broad terms, it's to in some way be rescued from the deception of violence. No mystery there, as to how that function, or who's in and who's out, that we can see cultures and religions that are given over to violence. I think we all are gonna to have to negotiate this when, I, when we think about the Johannine word, the logos, or we think about the Trinity, or we think about the preexistent Christ. I think there is a tendency to think of these things in a sort of generic fashion that is separate from the gospel. And this is a very simple idea. The word that is Christ, especially I've been doing Ephesians, that he's talking about a predestined word there. Well, what is, uh, you know, obviously that's a reference to Christ. It's not a you're in, you're out. Talking about it that way. And then draw in the reality of God's eternality, we can state make a very simple statement that in Christ, in Jesus, in Jesus of Nazareth, in his life, death, and resurrection, is revealed to us the eternality of God. In an attempt to separate out the Trinity and talk about Christ, there was in the 18th, 19th century this discussion of a pre-existent word, I had always thought, oh, well, that must be there in the early church. There was no concept of a pre-existent word separated out from the gospel. Who Christ is, who that person, the third person of the Trinity, or who, who Christ, who Jesus, is filled out by who Jesus is. We know who the Trinity is, uh, what the Trinity is, only through the life and maybe especially the death of Christ. We do not have access to Trinity or even the concept of Trinity, and certainly not to the imminent person of God apart from the person of Jesus. But what I'm saying is we have access to God, and so there is a lot, and I'm not denying the traditional doctrine. In other words, there is this huge focus I always thought it was a mistaken understanding. and I, the The answer that was given in open theology that I think is a mistake, that is answered by the discussion that we're presently having, is to recognize that God is in Jesus and is not impassive, is not without suffering. And so to begin to talk about God apart from Jesus Christ, I think is already a category mistake.
1: And I think it goes the other way around, too. You know, when, when we talk about Jesus, we think of him as a pacifist. And when we talk about God in the Old Testament, he's the violent God. And so, yeah, if, you, if, if we can connect the two, as if, if they're two or one, the only way you can know God is through Jesus, then you know that God is peaceful as well in the, in, in the Old Testament. Not the other way around.
0: That's who God uh, and so, is. Yeah,
1: in the Old Testament the books, and you realize that God is not allowing violence; He's actually reducing it quite a bit. But He's reducing it, you know, gradually if, until Jesus, and then Jesus finally gives us the whole uh, reduction of that violence completely. And, and you know, they ended up killing him for that. But
0: <laughs> is there a tension in Scripture? There is evolution in Revelation, culminating in the person and work of Christ. And so whatever we do with the Old Testament, the lens through which we now read it is Christ. Certainly that's the the perspective on the road to Emmaus, that Christ is the center, he's the interpretive frame. Now the details of that may be, at least there is an example of that in origin. Okay, if we're all agreed, I'm, I'm taking this somewhere with this in regard to religion. If the cross... And by the cross, I mean the life, death, resurrection. I don't mean a particular period. But if the cross is an eternal fact about God, if the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is an eternal fact about God, which I think it is, then the place in which we come to the intersection of time and eternity, of who God is, is in and through the historical person, or the unfolding of his presence in the church. And while we would not want to talk about God's absence in the universe, obviously not in the cosmic Christ, that in him all things live and move and have their being, nonetheless, there is a clear, what I'm fighting against here is a Richard Rohr sort of flattening out or a Franciscan flattening out, or a Duns Scotus flattening out, that you get in the univocity of being that pictures all being as a univocal voice of God so that we can see, you know, Roar talks about, well, my dog, you know, my I really love my dog, and I can see Christ in my dog. It's not that I'm completely unappreciative of finding the fingerprint of God in creation. But I think that once you flatten out the being of God with the being of the world, there is a diminishment of the person of Christ, and there is a kind of embrace of a a completely abstracted understanding of who God is. You know, that is, I think, the background. This is what John Milbank and others are going to say is the background. To the rise of secularism secularism they're going to blame specifically on duns scotus and on william of ockham and it's from that place then that nominalism and secularism in their telling of the story arise i'm always hesitant to point my finger at an, an individual and say oh he did it but i think we can point at these people and say these are markers of the disenchantment of the world. In other words, what you get in secularism and in modern experience is not an encounter with God, but in fact a, a world in which God has in some way been excluded. My point being that if we do this thing wrong, if we do the whole under our understanding of how Christ comes to us through other cultures, or, you know, it's not that, that there is a complete absence. But if we fail to connect the revelation of who God is specifically with the historical Jesus, with Jesus of Nazareth, I think the end result of that is precisely nominalism, secularism, modernity, modern atheism, and a, just a, a different experience of the world in a sense, I think we need to be tightly exclusive about the specifics of salvation as we experience them in the body of Christ. And I think body is a key term here, because what Rohr is talking about, what Dun Scotus is talking about, I think it really is a disincarnate disembodied abstraction so when we talk about jesus christ jesus of nazareth is the absolute that we're working with in regards to who god is we begin with incarnation and we begin with embodiment that's not only something about his body but that's a statement about the reality of our bodies right this is a very wittgensteinian you know that the truth does not for for human beings, does not float free of embodiment. Truth, love, salvation is an embodied experiential reality. Language, we we really don't, you know, this is Wittgenstein's point. So that we understand, let let me state it in a kind of odd way. I'll state it, and it it may sound repulsive at first, but I'll, I'll try to make it not repulsive. Do we have an absolute morality in Christ? I would answer that we do, right? But it's not the morality of law. It's not the morality of an abstraction. It's the morality of the incarnate Christ. That is, it is the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. It is to walk as Christ walked. Encounter with Christ is continually depicted In the New Testament, as being part of his body, as being joined to his body through his blood, it's all very organic. It's all very much tied to incarnation, and in some sense, our continued participation or continued incarnation of Christ. So that this is a statement about the the nature of what human beings are. The truth then for us and here here comes the rub is always contextual. Let me state it even more abrasively it's always situational now let me explain <laughs> let me explain why that's not what it sounds like first of all that what people are outside of Christ to say that say it this way that people's ethic is a situational ethic uh you know this is what Paul is describing when he talks about that we're going to unify humankind, up until that point, we have the situation of the Jews and we have the situation of the Gentiles, and that is defined by their being pitted against one another. So that I think that every human situation will give rise to that same sort of opposition. If I would invite the church over and say, we're going to boil some small children for dinner on Sunday, Well, everybody would be repulsed by that and maybe they would call the authorities. But if I, you know, once you explain, well, every time that we have a war and we bomb Syria, we bomb Iraq, we bomb Iran. Do you think that children are not being boiled in fire in literally, you know, they're in chemicals so that our willingness, the willingness of humans to participate in violence, There is always this kind of situational understanding in which we will do evil that good may abound. I think that the situation of humans, in that it's always tied to a particular group of people, a particular situation, is inevitably violent. And I think that's what Paul is describing. So that in turn, when we understand that the situation is made new in Christ, that we have access then to humanity, we have access to, I hesitate to use the word universality because it it tends to float free of embodiment. But the idea is is that the enemy is now the neighbor. There are no enemies. There are no children that we would be willing to sacrifice in the cause of Christ, that we have an absolute, there are absolute prohibitions that come with our understanding of who Christ is. Probably we shouldn't be Christ killers. In other words, what was it? It was the, on behalf of the Jewish law, the Jewish temple being Jewish that the Jews felt they had to align against Christ and crucify him. Couldn't we all as Christians agree upon one thing? it might be a good thing not to crucify the Son of God. There is an absolute morality. But I think tied to that absolute, then, are a series of absolutes, of things that we would and would not do. And violence, then, is the demarcation uh, between those two things. That there is, then, access to an absolute morality. I don't, you know, how do we say it? In other words, we don't want to fall into legalism nor do we want to fall into some form of situational ethics. But in a sense, it is situational. In the By situational, we mean that it's embodied, that we have this ethic embodied. I think precisely the thing that is happening outside of the Christian religion, not just in other religions, but just with humanity, is that there is an abstraction from embodiedness. There is an abstraction that we, we would arrive at, at a truth that it's an impossibility to embrace all peoples in that truth. What I've just said is very dark. I'm willing to go dark that at some level, there's something wrong with people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we all agree yeah. with that, that there is violence, there is delusion that exists in cultures and peoples. And that is not to be dismissive of either one it is to say that we can begin to put our finger on what's, what's happened or what's gone wrong with people. And so that I think the way that we do that then is through this understanding that who God is is not an abstraction, but it is an embodied reality that we come to in Jesus of Nazareth.
1: Your example of boiling boiling kids. <laughs> that was thought it was great because, yeah, that's true. I mean, when we talk about war, it's like, oh well, that's justifiable you know justifiable violence you you can do that because it's war, yeah. but when you put things that way, which makes it a lot more, you know it's it's clear you know soldiers will be used to it. People who are in those places are used to it. doesn't mean that it's a good thing at all. just because you got used to it doesn't mean it became good.
0: I think a lot of people would agree, oh yeah, there's absolute morality. But they're always willing to say, yeah, but we understand that just war is a necessity, or we understand that levels of violence are a necessity. And so I think that most people, in fact, don't believe in an absolute morality, or at least they don't believe that they can or have to adhere. I think that once we say that Jesus, the man, is an eternal fact about who God is, then the reality of our lives, we're dealing in eternal realities in the present tense, embodied historical condition. We often think of this, you've you've heard people talk about, well, that has eternal consequences, and and very often what they mean by that is futuristic eternal Mm -hmm. consequences. But I'm making it even worse and better. I mean, that is, there is a load of seriousness that is put upon human lives. If we understand that it's in Jesus that the reality of God comes to us. And so too, in our own participation, in our own embodiment of Christ, we're dealing in eternality. We're dealing with with the, the very imminence of God.
1: I wonder what their answer would be to the question, what doesn't have eternal consequences?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think the usual understanding is that, well, this is a temporary arrangement, and there is a kind of dualism that what you do with your body is secondary. Maybe, Matt, let me state it in a way that I'll try to arouse your opinion here. Who is Jesus, or who is the Logos? We'd all agree it's probably not a Greek understanding or a Platonic understanding. Or is it even the understanding of the Hebrew usage of logos i think it's not even that i don't even think it is the tetragrammaton in other words we need to read it in the other direction that jesus is the tetragrammaton and that is an unpronounceable generic name for god apart from jesus so that jesus is not a shadow is not a metaphor is not merely an analogy but in Jesus, we encounter the imminent understanding of who God is. That is an inner Trinitarian understanding of who God is. That participation is not a step removed in the shadow lands of human embodiment, but in as much as eternal realities then are open to us in Jesus, the, the Trinity is open to us historically.
2: Uh, Paul, I was wondering earlier whenever you were talking, so origin, I think it's origin, he talks about the cross, you know, if you just picture the cross, the outstretched arms of God, you know, that are reaching eternal, you know, sort of the eternal past and the eternal future, sort of verticality of the cross, that heaven and earth, you know, have come together, that the eternity past and future have come together and the body of Jesus on the cross. I guess I was wondering whenever you said earlier about the cross being eternal fact about God, which I, w- I would just assume that every fact about God is eternal. God is eternal. God but is you, under-
0: you understand it's the specifics of Jesus that are eternal facts about God.
2: Uh, break that down for me.
0: We're taking a different view of time and eternity, right? That the, the way we usually talk about God is, well, there was God in his preexistent state and Jesus in his preexistent state. And then Jesus decided, hey, I think I'm going to do that whole incarnation thing. I'm making a defense simultaneously of God's unchangeableness. That is that there is this consecutive order in the way that we've looked at who Christ is in the Trinity, that this series of events, this sequence of events unfold in the life of God as if something happened to God that had never happened before.
2: No, that's what, I mean, I I like what you're saying. I think that you were talking about this a little bit in a sermon that I was listening to. I can't remember, you put out two with very similar titles, but I thought it might have been the cosmic Christ, but you were laying some of this out. I guess I just thought that, okay, well, if you're going to say that, and I think it's perfectly fine and good and needed to say that, but then wouldn't we just have to say that humanity is an eternal fact about God? That is that your point is, is that there isn't some sequential thing where it's like God, you know, sees that humanity falls, then he decides to become incarnate. And then he decided, you know, that now that that was always the plan was for man to be, you know, deified. Theosis was always the plan. Christ was always going to come and make us, you know, fully human and join our humanity to, to God's divinity. What I'm asking is, is there a difference between saying that the cross is an eternal fact about God and that God's relationship with his creation, it's not to say that, that God is dependent upon his creation for, for who he is. It's just to say that, that it's an eternal fact about who God is. It just is. He, he did create.
0: What, what I'm trying to do is resist the duns Scotus mistake and flatten everything out and saying that, the university of being that all being then is reflective of who God is and that God's being, or I, I said that wrong, that God's being and the being of the creation are on the same level. I'm afraid that the move you just made makes that mistake. That is that it is specific to Christ that we encounter who God is. It is not specific to my dog or as to Alan's dog, as loving as he seems to be. It's not stuff or animals they may be reflective of who god is but their being is not divine
2: no no but but i but i would think though that and i don't want to make that move either but what i what what i would want to say though though is that the logos of god infuses all things that the creative energies of god even in my lazy dog mrs bobo that by virtue of her life and her participation and sharing in life whether it's plant life, animal life, human beings, or certainly in the life of God, that there is a, a participation, there may not be a continuum on the order of like a university of being, right? But it does seem though, if, if, if I guess I'm trying to reconcile what we're saying about the cross being an eternal fact about God, that is is that Christ is, you know God has always been the crucified one, uh, and that the, the cross is a revelation then, of who god is and that was always going to be the revelation of who god is and there's no revelation uh, of god on the cross apart from creation
0: that we do not want to fuse creator and creation so in christ the creator is in the creation and what we're talking about being in christ or encountering god is to pass from being merely creatures to participation in who the Creator is. Not everything is God. Everything participates, or everything you know, He holds all things together.
2: No, but I'm saying it. I'm saying it the other way. I'm saying that all of creation is the theophany.
0: Yeah, that sounds like Richard Rohr. He says the that the world is the body of God.
2: Well, actually, I was just quoting David Bentley Hart. That's the East too. That so that all creation is a theophany. That what redemption ultimately is is that all of creation transfigured, like the burning bush, you know, consumed with the glory of, you know, well, filled with the glory of God, but not consumed.
0: But the burning bush, a theophany is an appearance, right? Depending on what you meant by theophany, I could guess I could agree with, or or not agree with Richard Rohr when he says, the world is the body of God. I think that's too much of a flattening out.
2: And I think we have to say, with Kierkegaard, with, you know, the classical tradition, that God is in no way dependent upon the the creation for his being. The creation is not determinative of God. That is that sin, fall, the evil, uh, the devil, none of it, determines who God is. He's not dependent. That's Hegelianism. There's a synthesis then between sort of the divine and the, you know, and the human in that sense, that God is coming to Himself, He's in process, and so we we don't want to say that. So that's process theology. That is process. That is open theology. That God is related to to creation in such a way that He's in some way determined by you know responding to becoming. Period. That's just not the, That's not what classical theism teaches about God, though. That what I'm saying is is that no, that all creation is a theophany and that the cross is the ultimate theophany of the display of, you know, you said it in your article about John Bayer, that this is who God is.
0: I guess the the word theophany is a little ambiguous. You have all sorts of theophanies that are not the incarnation, and that the incarnation is a passage beyond mere theophanies to the reality of who God is, so that there is an unfolding of who God is. And in that sense, I think I, I... that in scripture, there is an unfolding, there is a, an evolution. Not to say there's an evolution in God, but there's an evolution for people in the revelation of who God is. That if you get this right, there is an affirmation of the traditional doctrine of God's unchangeableness. There is an answering of open theology without the falling into process theology. Because who God is. In Christ, in Jesus, is an embrace of change, of emotion, of suffering. In other words, all of that is part of who God is. But it's also simultaneously an affirmation. If we understand this is etern- an eternal fact about God, it's an affirmation. This isn't a new and in- a development with God, but this is an eternal affirmation, a- an eternal reality of who God is. God has always been in Christ.
2: But Paul, can I just ask you to get to, I just want to understand the point that you're trying to make. What's the point of saying that the cross is an eternal fact about God, for Bear, or for you?
0: And, and understand here that I'm not exactly duplicating the early church language here. They would talk about the passion and what they meant by that was not simply an episode in the life of Christ, but the whole suite of jesus that's no, not separated out that jesus of nazareth is an eternal fact about who god is okay in other words the, a way that we have of talking about christ this is like a secondary reality to the imminent trinity that some usages of the term analogy or the analogy of you know being or the analogia intus are sometimes taken to be then that who Jesus is is a kind of shadowing or a kind of illustration or a metaphor. I'm not saying that that's true of the correct usage of an analogy. But I think a lot of people have this concept that Christ, in his humanity, is somehow falling short of deity. The early church, the way that they talked about Christ. Bear is saying, and exactly actually, again, quoting uh, the Dominican priest, is that the early church, there is no notion of the preexistent logos, the preexistent word. It's a late development. That's certainly the way that, I, that I've been thinking about the logos. I think I've, I've been stuck on that, that there was this, this kind of unfolding in the person of God that Christ is a kind of—Jesus is a kind of new development. And the point is that we have—in other words, we've been thinking of in terms of time and not in terms of God's eternality. Time, you know, is not present. God is not subject to time, but he encompasses time. So when we say the word eternality, the eternality of God, if we're saying that who God is is revealed to us in Christ— The eternality of God is revealed to us in Christ Jesus. This is part of the point I think that Paul is making in using both the name Jesus and fusing it with the title Messiah. The messianic title gains its meaning through the incarnate man. And this then Bear and others are saying this was the view of the early church. Nobody, there was no mystery about what the logos or the word was. It wasn't some generic, disembodied, unfleshed version of Christ, there's only one version. That is the word that Paul you know talks about, the word of the gospel that Christ crucified. That in other words, the preaching of the gospel, the word is the logos. It is who Christ is. And that is who God is. Is that too much? save me if i'm i'm going over the cliff here it is an acknowledgement god is unchanging even in jesus because who jesus is is an unfolding reality in time i I think what we could tie our own church experience and by church i mean those who are participants in the body in the flesh there's a lot of talk about the flesh and blood and body of christ why because the incarnation continues in his people. I don't think it continues in all people, because people are evil. And evil is not an eternal fact about God. Did that con- did that get it, Matt?
2: Yeah, no, I don't think there's anything to save you from the cliff, from. What do you what's the what's the what's the cliff that you think may be there? I was just saying that to
0: accommodate I really don't believe that. I believe that I'm absolutely right. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> Are you being held hostage right now? Are you in some sort of crisis situation?
0: Uh, We're having to – doing this from the underground because they're going to come arrest us here in Moberly at any point once they find out what we're doing. They won't stop with what they've already done to us. I mean, it's really – it's
2: truly uh, subversive. Tim says it's coronavirus
0: insulation. (laughs) I think there are implications to what I'm saying that pertain to this, to the, to our notion of culture. Okay. And that is that I'm, I'm acknowledging the cosmic Christ, but tying the cosmic Christ directly to Jesus. There is, I don't think there's any mystery that we have the possibility of failing to be human, of being given over to violence of being deceived. The human condition, I I think that sometimes we can get lost and think, oh, I'm okay, you're okay. Everybody's happy. But we're in a kind of, if nothing else in in this period in history, we should at least be able to acknowledge the darkness of the human condition that we're being saved out of. And so, uh, in a way, there is a darkness to what I'm saying, and that is that outside of the person and work of Christ, there is a failure of thought. There is a uh, there is a deception that is put upon people that is so obvious that it gives, in other words, it manifests itself in human violence, human degradation, human oppression. There's no mystery that's there. And so what we're being saved from is a very real thing. So that Richard Rohr, I'm afraid, would give us a, a sunny, happy, kind of understanding that would just send people off in the direction that they're already going and that they they can kick over the traces there are no absolutes everything is we can just embrace is good I think what I'm saying is to say that we're bringing absolute morality absolute truth and absolute ethic to bear upon the human situation
2: I guess what I guess what I what I was thinking was is a little bit different than, than how I'm not familiar with roar, by the way, I've not done hardly anything with him except for I follow him on Twitter. So that's pretty much the extent that I get of Richard Roar's thinking, but I guess in as much as I'm, I'm wondering what I meant by, you know, all of creation is a theophany is that all of creation is in some way a manifestation or an appearance of God and how God manifests himself in my opinion regardless of the, or the culture, I'm sorry, that you find yourself in. Obviously, you know, Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation and Christ crucified and resurrected. But also, I sent you an article earlier that was getting, getting at this a little bit, that, that the good, the beautiful, and the true are, in a real way, there's a conflation almost between the good, the beautiful, and the true, and being itself. All people everywhere God has revealed himself to them. I don't know, again, well, I don't know what Richard Rohr is doing. Obviously, God isn't evil. Obviously, God is, is going to be, you know, not, not as uh, sort of visibly manifest in the, you know, solitary confinement cells at ADX Florence on Colorado as is, you know, in the, you know, the Rocky Mountains that are just outside of that prison, right? So, he, you know, I think that his presence to us can be veiled. But is it part of what you're saying about the cross being eternal fact about God that also in the suffering, this is, you know, back to you and John's conversation as well. So the, the suffering, well, mine too, I was on the podcast, but um, that, that, that Christ crucified then, that, that whether it's in the good, the beautiful, the true, or even in, in the in the face of those who are suffering, there really is a theophany to, to be apprehended. There's a participation that's available in the reality of who God is, both in its transcendent sort of beauty and in its forms that are what we would consider the worst form of suffering.
0: Let me ask you, then, is that an open-ended possibility apart from Jesus of Nazareth?
2: No. Right?
0: In other words, I can agree with what you're saying if we distinguish between theophanies and what's happening in Jesus. I want to acknowledge there. There's a part of Roar, uh, you know. Uh, there's a kind of disenchantment of the universe in modernity, and what Roar is suggesting is a kind of possibility for a re-enchantment. I think that's good. I think, and what you're saying is a, a universe in which we recognize and feel the very presence of God. But unfortunately, the very formula that roar is deploying is that of dun scotus in which jesus must be diminished and christ then take his place so that uh he's giving us a re-enchantment on the basis of the formula that disenchanted it in the first place
2: yeah but i would i mean i think that it's exactly the opposite and i think so do you and that is is that uh and this is i think in the east just what the, the orthodox but well, at least the Orthodox that I'm reading teach, and that is, is that revelation given to us in Jesus Christ that we can begin to apprehend the good, the beautiful, and the true in all of creation. That is, is that yes. it's because precisely because of the revelation we have in Christ that we're able to recognize the uh, theophany in all, you know, the, the God's manifestation of Himself in all of creation. Oh, I'd even take it further that we can see Christ in
0: all of creation.
2: Yes, you. But you're not going to
0: see Christ in all of creation apart from Jesus.
2: That's right. Okay.
0: Good. I'm not saying you can't, that the reality of who God is in Christ might not be available for you there. But the problem is human failure, that we have an incapacity and, and sin always sounds like too small of a word here, but because of deception, because we live in a world that we would exclude God from, that we live in a the the world that the prince of the power of the air runs things. That's sin, and there's always the marker of sin. You know, I, the, as I was thinking, I said this actually yesterday. And I was very impressed with me. Uh, no one else was. <laughs> uh, Often the awesome case. There is a hellish view of God in which He's just perceived as a condemning judge. That's not simply a failed Christianity that is descriptive of Judaism, but I just think that's descriptive of the, of, of human religion. But even more than that, I think that's descriptive of the human psyche that who God is for us is the accuser. Who is the accuser? That's Satan. We've confused God and Satan and worship the devil. And that's probably why nobody amen begins. That's
2: you know. not provocative enough, Paul.
0: <laughs> if you think God is a condemning judge, accusing mankind, sending mankind to eternal, torturous existence in hell, that is the accuser. That is the prince of the power of the air. That is the, the work of the sons of disobedience. That is the, the, the understanding of wrath that you get the condemnation, not that that condemnation comes from God, that condemnation, the accuser, the Satan, the hellish religion, is precisely then over and against what we're describing as the reality of who God's, God is in
2: Christ. That's got to be the name of your next blog, Paul. Uh, you know, something about, like, too many Christians worship the devil or something like this.
0: And making that accusation, this this it's not like I'm free of this, right? Have we all sort of passed through this delusion? I would like to think, oh, maybe I was better than that. In other words, I think it's just the natural human tenet. It is the natural human religion that Satan or the the accuser or the prince of power of the air or the whatever you whatever that thing is voice upon us.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Ploughshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.